0: Hello and welcome to episode 272 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is from South Wales and it's particularly gruesome and it's and it's another of these cases where if you didn't know it was true you would assume it'd been created for fiction. Before we begin a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon but especially the new members of this community who are Andrew Wade, Katrina Wade and Glen de Francesch. Thank you all so much for your support. This show is brought to you by Wild, the new sustainable natural deodorant delivered straight to your door. Are you happy with your deodorant? I've gone from one to another over the years, but I've never been fully happy. But I am now. Wild is a natural deodorant that actually works even after a full day of walking here in the Scottish mountains with lots of layers. It's great. But that isn't all. It's vegan and cruelty-free as well as being eco-friendly with none of those harsh ingredients you find in some antiperspirants. Seriously, if it's something you never looked into, take a look. The other big plus for you with your busy lifestyle is that although you could buy wild at your favourite supermarket, it can be delivered straight to your door. That's right, you can order refills which will come through your letterbox whenever you need them either as a one-off or on a flexible subscription model. So what are you waiting for? Go wild today and get yourself this natural refillable deodorant that genuinely works. You can order by going to wearewild.com and get 20% off your first order when you use the code CRIME20 at checkout. That's wearewild.com and use the code CRIME20 at checkout for 20% off. Enjoy. I want to quickly alert you to a new true crime podcast, which I think is worth your time listening to. Picture the Scene podcast from Andy and Rachel covers mainly obscure cases from the UK and Ireland. It's released fortnightly, so why not take a listen? That name again? Picture the Scene. Check it out. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest month and year game. Top of the charts was a classic. Beats International featuring Linda Layton with Dub Be Good To Me. Of course, Fatboy Slim was part of the band. In the US, forget the number one from Janet Jackson. At number two, it was Rock Set with Dangerous. And top album in Australia was Midnight Oil with Blue Sky Mining. In the news this month, New York City's Zodiac Killer shot his first victim, Mario Orasco. Lithuania declared its independence. The Official Secrets Act came into force, I know, and in such a transparent society as the UK. And in UK true crime news, there were poll tax riots in London, as 200,000 people plus protested in the week before the official introduction of the community charge. It was as popular as Piers Morgan. Did you guess the month and year? It was March 1990. Today's story comes from Bristol in the west of England. How many of you have been travelling or have children who've been travelling or are currently travelling? I know when I spent 14 months in Southeast Asia and Australia before university, my parents were terrified. But 24-year-old Clive Tully's family in New Zealand, although a little wary, they were happy when he set off to go travelling or do the grand tour as he used to put it. He had family in Newport in Wales, just over the border from Bristol. And Clive found a room in a Bristol house share at 11 Luxton Street and began working for a building company based in Bristol. But life on a building site, especially 30 years ago, could have its challenges. His site foreman and his friend Michael Higgins lived in the same house share and the two enjoyed each other's company. But when Clive was told there was to be no Christmas bonus, he took it badly and he walked off site, which led to him being sacked. Making the best of a bad situation and in that travelling mindset, he told his friends that he needed a break and was heading off to Spain to get some sarn and to relax a little. Another friend from the house share, 42-year-old Malcolm Green, dropped him to the ferry at Plymouth and Clive headed off and enjoyed his time in the sun. On the 11th of March, Clive returned from his trip and knocked on the door of another friend, Dennis Coombs, who he stayed with for five days as he looked for work in the area. Dennis also gave him £200 so he could buy a flight back to New Zealand. A few days later, on the 17th of March, he turned up one day at his old home in Luxton Street, explaining to his friend Malcolm Green that he'd run out of money and asking him to stay for a while. While he got himself sorted out. Malcolm was, of course, happy to help out his mate and said he could sleep on his sofa and Malcolm would stay at his girlfriend's house in the fishponds district of Bristol. It was five days later, on March 22nd, 1990, that a teacher from Caffilly discovered two holders in a lay-by as she was driving along the A467 in South Wales. The holders were suspicious and they were taken to the police station and found to contain human remains wrapped in plastic and sealed with sellotape, including a torso, upper arms and legs. Four days later, a lambing assistant was working close to where the body parts had been found when he discovered what he described as a football-shaped object wrapped in a red plastic bag. Intrigued, he placed his hand inside and felt something that he thought appeared to be a nose. He had in fact discovered the severed head of a young man. This man had clearly suffered a violent death, with the head having been hit over ten times and had suffered a number of fractures. He also recovered a white plastic bag close by, which contained two amputated hands, with the third finger on the left hand crushed. Detectives didn't know who the murdered man was until a computer-enhanced photograph of the victim was published in the local media by a newspaper graphic artist. This man was soon recognised as 24-year-old Clive Tully. As detectives began to look into Clive's background and recent movements, they discovered that he'd been good friends with 42-year-old Malcolm Green. They also knew that Malcolm Green had previously been convicted of murder and had only been released the previous year. They headed to Green's girlfriend's house on the 30th of March just before midnight and arrested Green. When asked if he was responsible for Clive's death, Green simply said, Clive Tully, dead. He's my friend. I don't understand. Clive Tully dead. Me arrested. It's all a big mistake. In his interview, Green told police he knew nothing about the murder and was being set up by the real killer. It was time for detectives to look more deeply into the background of Malcolm Green. He'd been born into a large family of 12 children and raised in the Ely district of Cardiff. His childhood appeared to be dominated by one traumatic event, which was when he witnessed the death of his brother, Roger. Roger had been on his way to a football match in Reading and when he was in Ealing, West London, he was run over by a train, decapitating him. It was a terrible sight to witness and his brother Malcolm was understandably devastated by what he had seen and it haunted him for his entire life. Green's first job was in a slaughterhouse and after leaving this position, he managed to secure a role as a crane driver at the docks in Cardiff. By the age of 21, he was married to Marilyn Stevenson. But it was a difficult time for Marilyn. It was a really tough marriage to be in. Speaking 20 years later, she told of what Malcolm was like at the time, saying, Some of the time he was polite and charming, attractive to women, and highly sexed. At other times he could be violently possessive, fanatically tidy, and subject to fits. He got these fits after we married. He went into convulsions, and we had to hold him down on the floor, then he'd black out. Most of the furniture was ruined by him. He threw me across the room. He'd been in a lot of fights, he knew how to look after himself. A doctor at Cardiff Jail said he was so covered in scars that if you pulled one stitch he'd unravel. 40-year-old Glennis Johnson lived close to Green in Grangetown in Cardiff. She was a cleaner but also a sex worker at night to make extra money, working in the streets. In 1970, Glennis's mutilated body was found on Wasteland in Wharf Street in the dock area of Cardiff, a very different place to what you find if you visit Cardiff Bay today. Police described how she'd been brutally and viciously murdered, having suffered a five-inch wound across her throat from a broken bottle. Other parts of her body had been cut too. It was apparent that the killer had inflicted much more damage on Glennis than was needed just to take her life. It appeared that whoever killed her had taken pleasure from the act. Before police found the body, Malcolm Green twice called the investigation team, telling the operator, Have you found the body yet? There'll be four more. I am the Ripper. But it was a stupid mistake from Green as the calls were immediately traced to the British Steel Corporation's East Moor's works, where he worked. It transpired that after the murder of Glennis, he'd returned to where he worked in the docks to shower and to wash his clothes which were covered in blood after the violent attack. Detectives, once they'd received the call, went to the scene in Wharf Street and they found Glennis with her head down under a car. They then went straight to where Green worked and he was arrested. His fellow workers told how he'd been a bit of a mess when he turned up for work that day. He was shaking, he was sweating. When police looked at the clocking-on times, they found he'd arrived at the factory just before they'd received the phone call about Glennis. When confronted, he admitted the murder, saying, I started walking home by myself. I'd had a lot to drink and wanted to sober up. At the bottom of Butte Street, I was approached by this woman. She asked me if I was interested in business. She started screaming and pulling my clothes. I lost my temper and exploded. The next thing I remember was walking home. When detectives went to his house, his wife wasn't home, as she was in hospital, having recently suffered a miscarriage. In the corner of a room, they found a dummy, which had been made from rolled-up carpet and dressed in a shirt and a coat. Shockingly, in its chest was a knife, and there was some sort of red substance around the area where the knife had penetrated the surface. At the police station, Green later tried to claim he'd never made this statement, calling the police barefaced liars. And at his trial, he said the statement was all made up by the police, and he'd no idea how Glennis' blood was on his shoes and his clothes. But the jury didn't believe him. And on the 5th of November 1971, he was found guilty and told he would spend at least 25 years in prison. As he was taken down to begin his sentence, Green shouted, I'll appeal against this. His wife at the time spoke of these events 20 years later, saying that she wasn't at all surprised when the police told her they suspected Green was guilty of a serious crime. She recalled him saying, I wonder what it's like to murder. It stuck in my mind and I sometimes think I was lucky that it wasn't me. Green stayed in prison for 18 years of the 25 years of his sentence, and was finally released from Layhill Open Prison, when psychiatrists gave the go-ahead. He was said to pose no further risk of offending, and I suppose it's easy to see why. He was a model prisoner who worked hard preparing for the next stage of his life. After all, he was only 42 when he was released. He studied at nearby Filton Technical College in Bristol and did well academically and he socialised well in the group and in the community. In fact, it was here that he met his soon-to-be girlfriend, Helen Barnes. From prison, he moved to Bristol to start a whole new life and moved into the house shed in Luxton Street, where he got on very well with another young man who was living there at the time. That man was Clive Tully. In fact, they got on so well that Clive saw Green as a bit of a mentor almost, and he even spent Christmas with Green and his girlfriend Helen. But now Malcolm Green was the main suspect for killing Clive. But what was the motive? And was there any evidence? Police searched his girlfriend's house and believed they were looking at the murder scene. They found bloodstains on the ceiling, on the door, the Venetian blinds, the coffee table and the sofa in the main living room, used by Green and Helen. Green had made a, well, a loose attempt to cover up his tracks. He used a rug to cover up some of the blood stains, But they could also see that a piece of carpet had been torn away, been covered with detergent and used to clean. But Green hadn't been at all thorough, and from the immaculate bathroom, a series of bloodstains could be found leading to the living room and forensic experts recovered two of Green's fingerprints on the bags containing Clive's head and his arms. And also they had a witness who had seen a man who matched Green's description in the lay-by where two of the holdalls containing Clive's body parts were found. He'd been standing by a car which was very similar to the light-coloured Mini Metro owned by Green's girlfriend Helen, which he regularly borrowed. The witness, when he saw him, had assumed that the man had broken down, but he did recall wondering why he had such a large holdall for the tools to repair his car. Detectives asked the man to try to recognise Green at an identity parade, which he did. He said, When I first went in, I was pretty certain I recognised him, but when I asked him to turn to the left, I was 100% sure. I had a mental picture in my mind of this chap. Detectives believe that Clive Tully was murdered in the living room of his girlfriend's property in Fishpool Road by Green on March 19th, two days after Clive had arrived at his door asking for help. Pathologists came to the conclusion that a hammer was used to inflict a large number of blows to Clive's head before using a sharp instrument or a saw to neatly cut off his head. Looking at the rest of Clive's body, there was little damage to soft tissue, which led experts to believe that the removal of the lower arms, legs, hands and torso was also neat. What a horrendously simple but gruesomely evocative description of what had happened. You can't help thinking he may have been using the skills he learnt in his first job at the slaughterhouse. Detectives were under significant pressure to be sure they got the man responsible for the murder of Clive Tully off the streets. It was a case which shot Wales and beyond and resulted in Green being known as the the body-in-the-bags killer. After a seven-day trial, the verdict from the jury was unanimous. He was guilty. Green, who had already killed once, was responsible for another murder. As the judge passed the sentence, Green could not stop himself calmly, interrupting twice to say, I did not kill Clive Tully. As he was taken down to the cells, he lost that calmness that he'd earlier displayed as he continued to protest his innocence. Now he shouted at the jury, you are wrong. He was told he would serve 25 years in jail, but the Home Office later reviewed the sentence and decided that only a full life sentence would suffice for Malcolm Green, ensuring that he would die in jail. Speaking after the sentencing, the detective chief superintendent, Mark Waters, said. He's a dangerous man who never should have been let loose on the public again. He had cold bloodedly cut up a man who was supposed to be his friend. I would like to know who was responsible for letting him go and on what grounds, and I believe they should answer for it. You can never be sure a killer won't strike again. Another detective described him as a psychopath, and revealed psychiatric reports which recommended he was not fit to be released from prison. He said, Of all the people I've interviewed, Green is probably the most dangerous and probably the most calculating. He's the most cold-blooded, calculating killer who shows no remorse for his actions. He thought he was able to beat the police. And one of Clive Tully's relatives said, If there's any justice in this country, they'll put him inside then throw away the key and forget he ever exists. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Was Green's bloodlust and his obsession with mutilation all due to the sight of his brother being decapitated by a train? Without getting into the realms of amateur psychology, it seems it could well be the case. I wonder if this was what led him to take his first job in a slaughterhouse. What was the motive for both crimes? Could it have been money in both cases—the small takings that Glennis had received from clients on the night she met him, and the two hundred pounds or so from Clive, which he'd been given for his flight home? It seems unlikely, I'm afraid, and terrifyingly, we probably need to conclude that he carried out the two murders we've heard about purely for the pleasure he derived from the act of murder, and not just the murder but the dreadful things he did to both bodies once Glenys and Clive were dead. As always on this podcast, when we look at someone who's murdered more than once, we have to look again at how the so-called experts deemed him suitable for release after serving 18 years of his 25-year sentence. We heard a moment ago from one of the policemen who said that, in his opinion, the psychiatrists had said he wasn't fit for release, so who knows the reality there. I'm sure there was some report some conclusions were drawn, and so on and so on. We've heard it a thousand times, right? But it does seem way too often that this judgement sometimes errs on the side of leniency when for clearly dangerous people who've murdered before, like Green, surely it should be weighted the other way. But our final thoughts are, of course, with the loved ones of those killed by Green. Lennis, just out doing her job earning some money and subjected to a terrifying death and Clive too, who'd called on his friend in a time of need, hoping for support and assistance, not to be the subject of unspeakable violence, and to have his life ended, his life of such promise, at just 24. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please just head over to the Facebook group, where there are 75,000 of us ready to welcome you. It's many things, but it's never dull. And to help me produce this free weekly podcast every single Tuesday, please consider supporting me at Patreon. For a couple of pounds a month, you can access bonus episodes and other exclusive content, as well as help me buy the latest Ferrari. Yeah, that was a joke. Not a very good one, but it was a joke. When you listen to the 37th most popular UK true crime podcast, you really do need to manage your expectations, like supporting the mighty league United, I suppose. Well, on that somewhat confused bombshell, I will leave you for another week. Please do check out Picture the Scene podcast, get your wild deodorant, and join me on Patreon to discover who really had the key and the secret. That's one for the kids. I'll speak with you next Tuesday. So until then, please do take it easy.